This is the word of the Lord. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is, uh, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you gather us here on this Christmas Eve uh, to set our minds on the wonder that the eternal Word of God took on flesh to dwell among us. And so, Lord, we uh, pray for the aid of your Holy Spirit as we give ourselves to ponder such profound mysteries. Lord, we can only do so um, by when you are our teacher. And so open the, the beauty of this text in, in uh, Colossians 1 and lead us to worship our Savior who was born of Mary. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today and tomorrow, uh, along with God's people around the world, we're going to be meditating on the wonder of Christmas, and I, I want to spend some time this morning trying to explain the beauty and the mystery and the profundity of who Jesus Christ is. And uh, I remember when I, I was a child, probably eight or ten years old, I, I didn't grow up in, in the church. I didn't, my family was not a religious family. I don't think I'd ever been in a church before I was ten years old. And, uh, but in my room, I remember lying on my bed, and I would look out of the window, and there were, I could see the tops of the trees outside of my house looking up into the blue sky. And I remember staring at the blue sky, and I would look at it like I tried to look into the sky. And I was like, why is this here? Why, why does everything exist? Can anyone know why anything exists? And I would sit there, and I would wonder that. And even as a child, I thought, you know, no one can really know the meaning of everything. Because God, if there isn't even a God, he's invisible, he doesn't talk, we don't hear from him. And so really, the only way you can have any idea about the meaning of anything, of everything, is just by making guesses. And we're all going to make a guess, you make a guess, I'll make a guess, and then we'll live by our guess. Well, the central claim of the Bible is that the God who made the world, who is the meaning behind everything, has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The central claim of the Bible is that the God who made the world, who is the meaning behind everything, has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I imagine that, you know, if someone had told me that when I was a 10-year-old, I would have immediately thought, well, you know, there's other people that claim that God has revealed himself to us through them, you know, 
Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith. I mean, there's been countless spiritual leaders or cult leaders who say, I'm God's messenger and I'm here to tell you uh, what God says about himself. How do you know that Jesus is right and they're all wrong? What makes Jesus unique? And uh, that's the question we're going to be exploring this morning. What makes Jesus Christ unique? And uh, I want to give four answers from this passage from Colossians 1 this morning. What makes Jesus, why is Jesus Christ unique? Four answers, and this is what they are. Is that the meaning of human life is Jesus Christ. The meaning of nature itself is Jesus Christ. The meaning of history, all of history, is Jesus Christ. And the meaning of God is Jesus Christ. And if there's a, you know, a better way that you could summarize the meaning of everything by saying the meaning of human life and all of nature and all of history and God himself is Jesus Christ. I don't know how you could be more, capture everything, but all of it is here in this passage. And so uh, this passage from Colossians 1, it's one of the most majestic in the Bible, how sweeping and how soaring it is and exulting in the, how profound the, the claims of the Bible is, is about who Jesus is. And so... Today, four answers to the question, why is Jesus unique? And the first answer is this, that the meaning of human life is Jesus Christ. The meaning of human life is Jesus Christ. And, and before I explain that, let me just first ask you this question. What would, how would you describe how our culture says what the meaning of being human is? Like, what is human life about, if you were to ask someone in our culture? And I think it's probably a lot of different answers that people would give, but probably the most dominant theme in our culture right now is that being human is about becoming your true self. You know, we live in a psychological culture, and you have this kind of true self down in your soul, and we've got to let out your, your true self. That's what it means to be human. And so basically we say, well, you know, your family and society has been putting all these expectations on you, and it's suffocating your true self, so your true self can't get out. Your true self needs to break out, and finally you, you're being fully human. And uh, ultimately that says that my life is about me. I think for any, any, many of us, when you just say that out loud, my life is about me, you know that's, that's got to be wrong. I mean, it's just too self-absorbed to be like, my life is about me. It's too turned in on myself. It's too small. I mean, it's just, it's so little. It's almost petty to say that my life is just about me. And so it leaves us with the question, if life is not ultimately about me, what am I here for? Well, this passage has a profound answer, and it's, it's there in verse 15. This is talking about Christ. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, on the one hand, that little verse, he is the image of the invisible God, is, is answering the question from 10-year-old Nate, who's like, well, God's invisible and he doesn't talk. How could we know anything about the meaning if, he, if we can't see him? And so this verse is saying, well, Jesus is the invisible almighty God making himself concrete. And so if you want to know God, you can look at, he does, you can see him in Jesus Christ. You can listen to him in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's answering that question, but it's actually saying something else also. And I've, I've read this verse countless times. I mean, I've read Colossians more times than I can count. And just recently, a, a Tommy Hanna, who's our, our college pastor, pointed out something to me that I've never realized before. And he said that it's very common for Christians to say that humans are God's image. 
Maybe that's something you've said. I know I've said it, that humans are God's image. And, uh, and actually, I was just reading a Christian book this week, and it said humans are God's image. But actually, the Bible never says that, that humans are God's image. The Bible says that humans are made after God's image or in the likeness of God's image. And the only one who is actually God's image is Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is saying. And which is an amazing thought because it means that all human beings, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you bear the image of Christ. The very meaning of what it is to be human. He is like the template. He is the archetype of what humanity is. We were all made to become like him. And that's what being human is to become more and more like Jesus. That's what that means. And to reject Jesus is to dehumanize yourself. It's like you're rejecting yourself in the very sense of what you were made to be. And actually, uh, you know, some of you would say, I've experienced that in my life. You know, when I reject God's purposes and Christ for me and I just go my own way and I just find it keeps destroying me. I mean, I knew that, uh, you know, before I was a Christian, I mentioned I didn't didn't grow up in a a Christian home. And when I was 15, I, I left home and I dropped out of school and I was on drugs. I was stealing all my food and all my beer and uh and my life was falling apart. It was destroying. It was, you know, of course, my parents were just distraught as they watched me destroy my life. Living for me was destructive. And I became a Christian when I cried out to God. Someone had, had given me a Bible and told me to pray. And I said to God, I don't even know if you exist, but I don't know how to live. And so I'm going to trust that you're going to do something in my life. And That was the turning point for my whole life, being found by Jesus Christ, and then in him, learning what it means to be human. But I'll tell you that even at that point, you know, when I first heard about Christ, I was so inspired by him, and he was changing my life, and I loved him, but I still had this question, and maybe you've had this question, where I said, you know, it seems so narrow to me. To say that all of human life is about this one guy. I mean, he lived 2,000 years ago in a specific culture, and he had a certain family. He wore certain clothes. He spoke a certain language, ate certain food. And that specific guy is the template for all people in every culture and throughout all of history. How can that be that something so narrow is, you know, such a broad answer? Well, you should know that, first of all, that Jesus states pretty clearly that the way to truly be human is narrow. Uh, Some of you know in the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words. He says, For the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The way of true human life is narrow. You should expect that. Actually, G.K. Chesterton says something similar. He says human life is like standing on a pole. And falling off a pole, there are a million different angles by which you can fall off a pole. So there's lots of different ways to fall. There's only one angle by which you can stand. And Jesus Christ is the one angle by which human life was meant to stand. And if you struggle with that narrowness of the Christian message, let me just ask you this. If God was going to show us the meaning of human life, how would he do it? If you have a better expectation of how he would do it, I mean, it's reasonable, it's totally rational to say he would come and do human life and show us and do it perfectly. 
That seems perfectly rational. And if he's going to do human life, the only way you can do human life is in a specific culture, in a specific family, at a specific time, in a specific place. That's what human life is. You can only do human life that way. I can only do it that way. God can only do human life that way as well. And in fact, it's far more wonderful that God became a specific human. You know, what's more wonderful, a specific human or some vague energy in the sky that, you know, an abstraction, a philosophical abstraction that philosophers talk about? Not interesting. God becoming a human being is wonderful. So the first profound truth of Christmas is that the very meaning of human life is Jesus Christ. And that's not just true for Christians. That's true. Their very meaning of all humans is he is the template and archetype. And if you are here today and you say that human life doesn't seem to be working for me, I don't understand how human life works, then Jesus bids you this Christmas to come to him and to be healed by him. But it turns out that what this, pa- this passage goes even further than saying that, and that leads to our second, que- second answer to uh, what makes Jesus Christ unique. The first thing, he's unique because he's, he is the image of God, and he, he is the very meaning of what human life is. But the second thing is that, the me- is, um, that makes Jesus unique is that he is the meaning of nature. The meaning of nature itself is Jesus Christ. And again, you'll notice how in verse 15, after it says Jesus is the image of God, it goes on to call him the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? I think a lot of people, when they read that, they think, well, you know, God created a lot of stuff. They're like his children. And then the first thing he created was Jesus. And uh, if you've read through the rest of the Bible, you know that's not true. Jesus was not created. You know, he was begotten by the Father. But in the ancient world, to be the firstborn means that you were the heir. So it means that he is the one who's inheriting all creation. The creation has been given to him, so he owns all of creation is what it means when it says he's the firstborn of all creation. And that means that if you picture the whole universe, you're like, how big is the universe compared to God? You know, let's Let's just say it's like in his hand or something. It's like a ball in his hand. You know, it's very small. God is huge. And this gem, the father is giving to his son. That's what the universe is, is this beautiful gift of the father to the son. And so when you ask, like, what is a turtle or what is a tree or what is the solar system? It's the gift of the father to his son. And that means that every physical thing that's created, its very existence, the foundation of its existence is love that it was a gift. It's all given to, uh, to him. And then it goes on in verse 16, and it says, for by him all things were created. So it's not only that the, the universe was a gift to the Son, but then uh, the Bible says clearly that the universe was like a joint creation of God the Father and God the Son. And uh, Proverbs uses the, the image of kind of like God the Father has this workshop and he brings his son to come make this thing with him and he's working alongside him and it was a delight. And you imagine a father and a son working that way and it's like, hey, I'm gonna do, we're going to make this thing together that's going to be a gift for you. And it says that's actually what the very like foundation of the universe is, is that kind of love. And that's, uh, and that's actually not just nature that they, you know, they weren't just building a universe, the physical universe, but it goes on and it says, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. So it's not just the natural world, the things that we see, but it's also the angels and all the spiritual world that we can't see, that we know very little about. All of that was made and was a gift to the Son. 
Jesus is the meaning of all of it. And it's interesting that science, the study of nature, was developed in, in Christian lands, in, in places where people believed in Jesus Christ. And, and we say things in science like, you know, so, you know, maybe a physics class, that we're studying the laws of nature. And I think a lot of times modern people don't realize that they're saying a metaphor when they say that, the laws of nature. What they're basically saying is that all the objects or, you know, bits of mass in the universe are like citizens in some kingdom that has these laws, and they're very obedient citizens who obey the laws of nature. And so when you drop the apple, it's like it does what it's told and obeys the law and falls to the ground. And now, for anyone else, that's just a metaphor. But for us as Christians, that's actually literally true. There, is, there are laws because there's a lawgiver. And we would say that the lawgiver over every atom of the universe is Jesus Christ. And you see what it says there in verse 17. It says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I just, I, I love that statement that all things hold together. You know, I think of you all just sitting here. And why, why doesn't your body melt into a pool of flesh and guts on the ground. Why are you able to sit in your chair and you don't fall apart? Jesus is holding you together right now. Your face is holding together. Your brain is firing. You know, the airwaves that are going from my mouth to you so that you can understand and we can relate to each other. All of that he's carefully holding together so that you can exist. And it's amazing. He doesn't just do that for you all who are worshiping him and love him. He does that for people who hate him. People who hate the name of Jesus, he still holds their face together and he still, you know, beats their heart and gives them food and gives them families and gives them jobs and lets them live in his beautiful world. Everything is held together moment by moment by his word of love. I mean, it's an incredible picture. And you think of each of those atoms that make up the molecules of your body. And we know that atoms, each one of them, has a tremendous amount of power within inside it, right? like nuclear power, right? It's the power than an atom. And uh, this passage says that the source of that power, and think of how many atoms there are in the universe. Every single atom charged with power is the source of that power is Jesus Christ. He is the power behind those. And so when 10-year-old Nate looks out the window and he's looking at the blue sky and he's looking into it, he's like, why is it blue and why does it even exist? This passage gives the answer that the meaning of nature is Jesus Christ, the person, it's the mind of Christ. Now, of course, what's remarkable about this is uh, when we think about Christmas, and you say, okay, Jesus is holding all our bodies together. How did he do that when he was just a baby? And then Jesus, it wasn't, he wasn't just a baby. I mean, Jesus was a zygote inside the womb of Mary. And so how does a zygote hold together the universe? And I think when you ask it that way, you have it kind of backwards. It's not because, you know, a baby can't and a zygote can't hold together the universe. What it's more like is that the brilliant, powerful mind that existed before all things and is holding all things together wants to display his power. And he says, watch this. I'm going to become a baby and still hold together the universe. You know, it's kind of like if you played me in ping pong and I was, wanted to show you how much better at ping pong I am than you, I would play you left-handed and still beat you left-handed. You say, wow, he even beats beats me left-handed. Now do that on a huge scale where God is like, watch my power. I will be the sovereign Lord while I become a zygote inside of a mother. And he still holds together the universe. And if you think, I don't think he could do that. 
Well, it just means you don't understand the magnitude of God's almighty power. And it's one of the great stories of the Bible where God says, I'm going to make myself weak, and I'm still going to be way more powerful than all of you. And that's what he did on the cross. Jesus became weak and conquered all the forces of evil in his weakness to display how great his power was. This is all so incredible. The meaning of human life, the image of God, is found in Jesus Christ, and all of nature find its meaning in Jesus Christ. That's why we even began to understand nature, is because we were studying his mind as the great lawgiver. But it turns out that the Bible doesn't just say that the Father gave his Son this world. You know, that's true. All things were made for Christ. But then when Christ received the world, he went and saved the world, and then he's transforming the world, and then he's going to offer the world back to his Father as a gift. So it's this whole gift and exchange. The Father gives the world, and then the Son transforms the world and says, I'm going to give it back to you, transformed. And then they're going to share in this world and dwell in this world together for, for endless ages. And so this leads to the third thing that we see in this passage. Okay, so first, the meaning, the meaning of human life and the meaning of nature are in Jesus Christ. The third thing we see in this passage is that the meaning of history is Jesus Christ. The meaning of all human history is Jesus Christ. And so the first half of this passage is focusing on Jesus' authority over creation, and the second half focuses on his work of redemption. So you see there in verse 18 how it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, several things to say. The first thing is that this says, you know, it's saying all these grand things about Jesus. And then it says this. This kind of blows my mind. He is the head of the church. And it kind of reminds me of his care for the zygote. You know, he's like, the great God becomes a little zygote. And here Jesus is going to be the head of what kinds of communities? Little ones like this, you know, that... You know, people don't think anything important is happening here. They drive by and they're like, I don't know, there's some people that are singing songs in there. And yet there's little communities like this all over the world in India and Kazakhstan and in uh, Uganda and in Norway and in Argentina and in Bellingham. There's all these communities like this that gather and they sit under the Word of God and they come and eat bread and wine together and they pray their prayers before the God that they love. And he says, all those little communities that seem so unimportant to everyone, I am the head. And he believes that these communities are his primary agent for the transformation of the world. It's again, it's like choosing a zygote to show how powerful he is because he's going to work through us. And then it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And basically what this verse is saying is that the beginning or the turning point of all human, uh, human history is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, just as like at the creation, a whole new world came into being, when Jesus rose from the dead, there was a beginning of a new world began when he was raised from the dead. And it was the beginning of the establishment of God's kingdom in the earth. And I wish I had more time in this sermon to show you in a thousand ways why truly the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the turning point of all history and all civil, human civilization. Uh, how he is the source of all human rights. I mean, so many things that we just take for granted 
that were not a part of human culture until the resurrection of Jesus. Human rights, the ending of slavery, the moral formation of nations, the development of medicine, you know, the invention of universities and learning, you know, mass literacy, the fact that, you know, we all know how to read is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the development of science, free societies, all of this, it goes on and on. It literally all links back to the coming of Christ. That's when the world changed. But I'll give you just one quote that captures this idea for me. It comes from uh, G.K. Chesterton. Again, I mentioned him earlier. And he wrote, it's probably my favorite book outside of the Bible. It's called The Everlasting Man. And it's, it's basically this broad sweeping survey of all human history before Christ's coming and all the pagan cultures and the Jews and everyone leading up to him. And then even the, the, you know, the, um, the story of the nations and the church after the coming of Christ. And in the conclusion of his great book, this is what Chesterton says. He says, right in the middle of all these things, and by all these things, he means you just think of all the billions of people that are bustling around the earth and cities that are so busy and cultures and all that's happening, all this bustle of human life, he says, right in the middle of all these things stands up an enormous exception, something unique. It's quite unlike anything else. It's a thing final like the trump of doom, though it's also a piece of good news or news that seems too good to be true. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into the world this original invisible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths, the man who made the world. At the center of history, at the turning point of history, the meaning of history is in the man who made the world. That's who Jesus Christ is. And one of the unique things about the Christian understanding of history is that the Bible understands history as going somewhere. It's this story that has a beginning and that it has an end. And other ancient peoples did not view history that way. And many of you view it that way. It's like, yeah, there's a timeline of history, you know, and we're moving through history, and we're going through the timeline. The Greek people did not think that way. They thought of history as cyclical, you know, and, and the universe is kind of going through these cycles, and they repeat over and over again for eternity. And actually, modern people have started talking more that way, too, you know, um, uh, scientists have said, like, oh, you know, there's a big bang that was the beginning of the universe, and the universe is expanding, but there's going to come a point where it begins to collapse back on itself. And then it's going to shrink down into this infinitesimally small thing again, and then what's going to happen is going to blow up again, and then there's going to be a whole new cycle of expanding and collapse, expanding and collapse. And it's another way of saying that we're living in this endless cycle of, of uh, life and death, life and death. It was... E a uniquely Christian understanding that history is linear. And this passage tells us where history is going. What is the end of history? It's there in the end of verse 18. That in everything, he might be preeminent. The future of human history is that Jesus Christ will be preeminent in everything. And, of course, this is an important message for many, you know, many Christians think about our culture, and we think, oh, our culture is becoming darker and more lost and, and, and less Christian, you know, less people are, are committed to a Christian faith. And, you know, there have always been regressions like this in history. 
But Chesterton said in, in The Everlasting Man, he said, you know, Christianity's died five times in history, but it knows how to come back from the grave because it's God knew how to come out of the grave. And so Christianity resurrects and comes alive again. And, but the end of the day, the end of human history is that in everything Jesus Christ will be preeminent. Or another way that Isaiah puts it is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or as the end of this passage puts it, these beautiful words from verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the world that the Son is going to give back to his Father, a world where all things have been reconciled in heaven and earth. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, I don't know how you could get much more like covering everything than to say the meaning of all human life and the meaning of all nature and the meaning of history itself, all of human history, all finds its meaning and understanding in Jesus Christ. But there's just one more way that Jesus is the meaning of everything. And this is our, our last point, is that the meaning of God himself is Jesus. If you want to understand God, if you want to know God, you look at Jesus Christ. And, you know, we began this sermon with the question, what makes Jesus Christ unique? And ultimately, the answer to that is Christmas, that the child that was born of Mary grew up to claim to be God and to receive worship from people. He wanted people to worship him. And actually, in this passage, that claim is confirmed by the Apostle Paul there in verse 19. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness, everything about who God is, dwelt in Christ, was wrapped up in Christ. He's not just a messenger. The fullness of God is in him. And in that regard, Jesus is utterly unique. There is no one like him. And some of you might say, well, there's other people in history who claim to be God. And that's true. And they're crazy. All of them. I mean, that's a literal question. Name for me one person in the history of the world that claimed to be God who was not a psychopath. They all were. Who wanted people to worship them? They are crazy. There is only one exception. And you want to know what's unique about Jesus Christ? He is the only exception to the person who received worship and claimed to be God, but he wasn't a psychopath. And not only was he not a psychopath, everyone who reads the pages of his teaching and the things that he did of healing people, they love him. Even people who aren't Christians say, I don't believe in Christianity, but I like Jesus. He was not a psychopath. And not only that, he ended up being the most influential human who ever lived. It's not even close. Had the biggest impact. And when you realize those things, it leads you into a lifelong exploration of discovering that in Jesus Christ is actually the meaning of everything. Now, when you hear all this, you might think that what I'm saying is like, okay, pastor, you're making a case for me to believe in Jesus. There's a lot of historical evidence, and he did a lot of good things, and he claimed to do these things. I'm going to hear all this, and I'm going to decide whether he meets my intellectual evaluation, and if he does, then I will, I, I will accept him. And so you might think that really what I'm saying is that the most important thing is what you think about Jesus Christ. But C.S. Lewis pointed out that that's really not the most important question. A far more important question is what does Jesus Christ think of you? You're the one that will stand before him. It's he's the one who evaluates your life. He's not going to let you be the one to evaluate him. He is the very meaning of all existence. 
for you to decide whether he meets your standard is completely backwards. But when you ask the question, what does Jesus Christ think of me? That might make you begin to tremble as you think of all the brokenness and flaws and sins that are in your life. And then you find out that Jesus Christ was the one who welcomed the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He says, you just need to be humble enough to come to the child that was born of Mary and believe in him. And so this Christmas, the Lord bids you to simply believe, to receive the child king born of Mary. And the reason you have to simply believe is because you can't prove logic himself. You can't explain the foundation of all explanations. There is no other ground on which to stand. He is the meaning of all human life, the meaning of nature itself, the meaning of all human history. And when someone's existence is so fundamental, you can only come like the wise men with their gifts and bow down and worship him and say, Lord, would you receive me? For truly, you are the one who is the meaning of everything. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word that opens us, opens our minds to such mysteries that we would never have even um, dared to think of or even dream of. And Lord, the great mystery of Christmas that your Son took on flesh to dwell among us, uh, it is truly a wonder. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to lead each one of us in this Christmas season to adore and worship the Son of God, who is the very meaning of all things. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.